Welcome to Who's in STEM. I'm Ken Ono, your host and the STEM advisor to the Provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics at UVA. Our goal is to evoke flights of imagination and wonder by showcasing the cornucopia of all that is STEM at UVA, the marvelous world of UVA science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I was born the son of a mathematician. My father was a math professor, a number theorist at Johns Hopkins University, a school that is really well known for its preeminence in medicine. Now, my parents groomed me in the image of my father to become a mathematician. They even made me take the SAT test in second grade. But honestly, and I don't think this is unusual, honestly, the last thing I wanted to be was anything that my parents wanted me to be. I was, yes, a snot, a brat, and so as a freshman at the University of Chicago in 1985, I set out on a completely different path. I thought that I was going to go to medical school. Honestly, I was trying to follow in my brother's footsteps, which, um, silly ideal, completely nothing but wishful thinking. You see, my brother would later hold professorships in medicine at both Johns Hopkins and Harvard, and he's now the president of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. So it's a good thing that my dream only lasted five weeks. My first midterm in chemistry crushed these foolish dreams. Now, however, at the same time, on the same University of Chicago campus, and perhaps even in the same chemistry class, there was a future star in the field of medicine who would go on to make the University of Chicago proud. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Melina Kibbe, the Dean of UVA School of Medicine, UVA's Chief Health Affairs Officer, these are positions she assumed in September 2021. She has lots of titles. Just to name a few more, she is also the James Carroll Flippin Professor of Medical Science, a Professor of Surgery, Professor of Biomedical Engineering, and she has also served as President for the Association of Academic Surgery. Melina, welcome to Who's in STEM. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here today. Well, thank you for taking the time. You've got it absurdly busy schedule. As I understand, immediately after this recording session, you have an exciting thing to go to, which we'll talk about. Melina, we've seen so many amazing breakthroughs come out of UVA School of Medicine. Just to list a few, and I'm sure I've missed important ones, focused ultrasound, the artificial pancreas, discoveries about coronary artery disease, lung cancer, diabetes, and more. What's it like taking the helm with all these exciting research going on on grounds? Well, it's exactly what you just alluded to. It is really exciting. I love being in this role because in this role as Dean of a School of Medicine, I'm able to help support and resource individuals who want to make a difference and want to have an impact with their science. And whether it's through discovery science or innovation, everyone in the School of Medicine has the same goal of trying to improve human health. And how is there anything more laudable than trying yeah. to improve human health? And you mentioned all of the breakthroughs. It just puts a smile on my face every day when in the morning I'm getting ready for work and I have the news on in the background. And literally almost every day now, you are hearing about some kind of scientific breakthrough from our 
School of Medicine UVA community. So it puts a big smile on my face. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. Uh, thank you f- on behalf of all of our listeners for what you do and the accumulated achievements that uh, your faculty coming up with. Now, I want to talk more about the School of Medicine, and we'll get back to some of the research. Uh, I have to ask, as we started out as classmates in the 80s, long ago when we were still thinking about examinations and test scores. So tell us your story to inspire our students. What initially sparked your interest in medicine? Maybe even share some times of tribulation. So my story is interesting. And you'll, as you hear the story um, that has really driven me to become the person I am, you'll see a pattern. It's kind of, I'm very impressionable and I will say idealistic. So I uh, grew up in Southern California at the time of, yes, the Valley Girl. And I was in the Valley in the 80s. You mean San Fernando Valley? <laughs> uh, no, yes, yeah. pretty, pretty close. Okay. And so I was in the suburbs of L.A. And nobody in my family is in medicine. In fact, my mom's a small business owner and my dad, um, he's now a retired nuclear engineer. So I have engineering in my family. But what happened is a very pivotal event. So when I was a freshman in high school, you remember, and I believe they still do this to this day, they check everyone for scoliosis. And so I remember, you know, where they take a look at your back and your spine. And as a freshman in high school, they're like, wait a minute, Melina, we think that you have scoliosis. So next thing I know, I'm in a surgeon's office and being told that I have a very severe double curvature. And before I know it, I'm in the operating room. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so it was this event, this exposure to a surgeon who basically was able to fix me. I was just taken by it. And so for the longest time, I wanted to do what that surgeon did. I I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Mm. So you didn't become an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, you became a vascular surgeon. What do you do? So a va- that's a good question because a lot of people don't know what a vascular surgeon does. And so think of it this way. A vascular surgeon operates on all of the arteries and veins in your body except the heart, because that's cardiac surgeons, Mm -hmm. and the brain, that is neurosurgeons. Mm -hmm. So people that have blockages in their arteries from plaque buildup in their legs, we have to do a bypass. Or individuals where their main aorta in their abdomen starts to dilate, it's called an aneurysm. Well, if it dilates so much, it can rupture and you can die. So we fix that. Or another common procedure is when you have atherosclerosis or plaque buildup in the artery in your neck. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a risk for stroke because part of the plaque could break off to your brain. And so we go in there and we actually remove that plaque. It's actually a very fun operation. Wait, did you say operations are fun? I'm, uh. a, I'm a pretty squeamish guy, so I'm just trying to imagine that first incision. I can't even imagine... Yeah, what was it like to make that first incision on your first living patient? I know that's not something I, I plan to talk about, but I have to wonder, yeah, what is that like? The first time you're in an operating room with a living, breathing patient, 
that first incision? What are you thinking? That's a great question. Yeah. I still remember it to this day and it still gets me excited. It was that first attending who handed me the scalpel <laughs> and allowed me to make the skin incision. And it was beyond exhilarating. And, oh it, still, and okay. it still is to this day. So I guess that's one thing. That's when you know that you're meant to be a surgeon because there must be others. You must teach this in medical school, those who can't imagine making that first incision. Yeah. Well, but yeah. can I also tell you something kind of uh -huh. ironic about me? I have a huge fear of needles. <laughs> it is ridiculous. If you watched me go and get either my blood drawn or get the vaccines, the flu shot, you name it, I am the biggest baby on earth. Oh, you can't look at the needle going to No, oh. <laughs> no, no. And when I, when I have blood drawn, I actually have to lay down. It's all in my head. I know that. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So... I kind of want to do a, a deeper dive here on, on the on the research, the vascular surgery. So what is your research about? Have you developed new therapies, new techniques in surgery? So um, what the focus of my research has been is as a vascular surgeon, let me just tell you what one of the common problems uh, that we encounter with our patients. So when patients go to have a procedure, let's say a balloon angioplasty, which many of you have probably heard about, and it's common for the coronary arteries of your heart, where we go in and balloon open the plaque, opening up the artery so there's better blood flow. Well, those procedures don't last forever. The mere act of blowing up the balloon causes, while well, it's fixing the problem, long term, it initiates kind of a scarring process inside the artery. So eventually the artery will reclose up. Mm -hmm. So one of the main focuses of my lab is to develop novel drug-eluting therapies to prevent that process of reclogging the artery. Mm. And so I'll tell you just one of the projects that um, I think is really cool, and I kind of ca call it my Star Trek project. Um, <laughs> we're developing uh, targeted nanofibers that basically you can inject into an IV, this is the idea, you inject it into an IV, it'll circulate in your bloodstream and then target to the precise site that we want it to go to. So for example, the place where you just had a balloon angioplasty done, it'll bind there and then release a drug that will prevent that scarring. What are these fibers made from? What they're they peptide, they're mm -hmm. peptide amplifier nanofibers. And how do they know how to target these places that need this reinforcement? That sounds impossible. I mean, how, so if you were to add up distance-wise, length-wise, the entire cardiovascular system adds up to what length? How many miles? <laughs> okay, now you're... I'm you're, a mathematician. I know, you're reaching <laughs> back into my science days. Well, it's a lot. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. But um, you asked a, the, yeah. the perfect and germane question, especially since this is a who's in STEM. Um, the part of targeting the peptide amplifier nanofibers to the site of interest is actually what I consider to be the hardest part sure. because you need to identify some kind of protein mm -hmm. that is expressed at the site of interest and only at the site of interest and nowhere else in the circulating bloodstream. And so once you identify that protein, then what we do is we go through this laborious process to identify a short 
peptide sequence that basically is the sequence that will allow the nanofiber to bind there. And then we have to incorporate that binding, that, that amino acid peptide sequence into our nanofiber through covalent chemistry. And this all has to happen very quickly because as, there, as your heart is pumping the blood through the system, right, you're, you only have a second or a split second to get it right, to well, you make hope, that match. Yeah, you hope that that binding between the nanofiber and its intended target is strong enough to basically withstand blood pl- yeah. pressure and flow. Sounds impossible. <laughs> all right. <laughs> We're doing it, yeah. and it works. <laughs> oh, oh, that's wonderful. So describe to us the research process. What's your lab look like? How long does it take to, to carry out a project like this? It's, well, it's a major enterprise is what I'm getting at. It is. And these kind of projects take years and years because there's a lot of development, extensive testing, troubleshooting, modifying the therapy based on the results to continually improve it. And then, of course, once you have the therapy, you need to test it and usually test it in you know small animal models to make sure it works. And then eventually you'll go to a large animal model. And if that works, then you get FDA approval to then uh, try this in human. So um, my lab, it is a great privilege to be able to work with everybody that is in our lab. So the lab, uh, I have other professors, research technicians, uh, postdoctoral fellows, uh, graduate students, medical students, and I have undergrads that also come and work in the lab. And it's just a lot of fun because we're all working towards the common goal of trying to actually improve human health. Yeah. Um, so turning to the undergrads part, I'm glad that you mentioned that um, for first and second year students here at UVA or possibly even high school students who are thinking about coming to UVA, how could they come to your attention? What, what would you recommend for them if they want to work in your lab or another lab here at the School of Medicine? Right? They might apply to the College of Arts and Sciences. How did they find their way here? Yeah, so one is to know what you're interested in. And so what the one of the main ways is a student will go to our School of Medicine website and search um, basically the topic area. Let's say somebody's interested in cardiovascular medicine and restenosis. They can search that and identify the different faculty members that are doing research in that area. And literally, it's just reaching out to faculty, emailing them, saying, hey, you know, I'm a first-year undergrad, and I'm interested in, in studying science, you know, for the rest of my life. And I would like to start now and perhaps either work in your lab, volunteer in your lab, etc. So it starts there. And if students have any problems finding somebody, we also have resources in the dean's office uh, to be able to help students. So I would just refer you to our website. And I can add, um, what I've noticed is you have a fabulous newsletter. What is it called? Medicine in Motion? Is that what it's called? Thank you so, for bringing that so, up. I'm very uh, proud of that. Yeah, that comes across my feed. I think it's once a week. For anyone interested in all things medicine here at UVA, subscribe to that because you'll see every week there are four or five faculty winning major awards, working on great things. And so, yeah, that newsletter makes it easy. So thank you for putting that together. Thank you for acknowledging that. I love it. I love actually um, being able to promote all the amazing things that everybody else is doing. Well, it's wonderful. So circling back to your research, you talked about your lab, the the process of coming up with a, a concept, the testing, FDA approval, so on and so forth. 
how does this work actually end up in hospitals, in patients? Is there, is there a path to commercializing this technology? Yeah, great question. So um, I do have experience with that. So there's many different paths that investigators can take. So first, it starts with protecting your idea and your intellectual property and working with your tech transfer office to make sure that you have that protected. Then the the routes that you could go is to form a, a company, a biotech company, and try to develop the technology and get it to patients through that company. And we, I did uh, back when I was at Northwestern. I've formed a company, Vessel Tech with one of my biomedical engineering collaborators, Guillermo Mir, um, and it is based on some of our research, a drug-eluting vascular graft. The other path that an investigator can choose that's in an academic setting is once your um, intellectual property is protected through the university, is then the university can help to try to license that technology right. to industry. And that's also a wonderful way. Because listen, we got day jobs. And right. sometimes um, there's only so many hours in the day. And forming a company does take a lot of time. And so both paths are very viable. Right. And here at UVA, we do have a strong licensing and entrepreneurship team. Earlier this year, we highlighted the work of Boris Kovacev and Mark Breton and their artificial pancreas, which actually is quite personal to me because I have people in, in, in the family who are diabetic who use what is now called the Dexcom device. And yeah, it's, it's exciting for me in my role to be able to tell this story of, you know, without UVA and in fact, even without the mathematics that went into that, uh, that device wouldn't be on the market. So, I mean, yeah. UVA is a leader in diabetes technology, and I agree with you. It is everywhere now. If you look at a patient with diabetes, everyone seems to have the Dexcom, and right. I am incredibly proud of the research that was done here. And they're, they're continuing, as you know, to innovate and to improve the technology and still to develop new technology for patients with diabetes. Right. So from my role, it's the marriage of the engineering, the medicine, and even the fundamental questions in mathematics, solving uh, systems of differential equations, an enormous number of parameters in real time. All of these are, are significant problems, but when assembled properly, it, well, it transforms lives. Yes. Know? So a little bit of this back and forth. I want to turn circle back to your current role as dean. Uh, certainly when you were in college, you probably weren't thinking my dream is to become the dean of a major school of medicine. How did you get into university administration? What were some of the important steps along the way? Yeah, I get asked that question a lot and a lot about leadership. Um, a similar question is before this role, I was a chair of a department of surgery. And so I'm often asked, how did I know that I wanted to go into leadership? Well, I, I reflect on it a lot. Um, and I can just tell you this, that when I reflect on it, I've always been that person who's wanted to help other people. I've been that person, if I see something that needs to be fixed, I've wanted to get in there and fix it. So a great example is I still recall when I was like in elementary school, <laughs> I was the one organizing the dodgeball games, or I was the one trying to organize the little field trips to the zoo. When I was a <laughs> resident, you know, I was the one looking at the call schedules and trying to improve that for all the residents or fixing the rotations. I've always just been that person 
who's wanted to fix things and make things better for others. And if that's what you like to do, I think leadership is the natural evolution. Yeah, I'd like you to come over to my house. There's some things that need to be fixed in my house. Maybe that doesn't rise to the level of saving lives. No, I'm really, yeah. I'm really good with electronics and cars as well. Wow. So um, in terms of specific examples, you mentioned the Department of Surgery. Um, but I also know you're president of a major membership organization, American Association for, for Surgeons. Now... Uh, this is more than just administration. This is this this requires leadership. This requires evidence of sound judgment. Yeah, what did you learn leading such an important organization, and and how do you use that experience uh, here at UVA? That experience was fa- fascinating and wonderful. And what it taught me, or what it provided me, was the ability to lead a very large group of diverse surgeons, because I'm a vascular surgeon, but that organization is an organization of all different surgical specialties, but the commonality is they're surgeons all in academic institutions that basically want to have an impact. So it was wonderful to be able to lead a group of diverse surgeons towards that common goal of advancing academic surgery. So what what does that mean? I just want to tell you that when it comes to research, so I am worried that we have fewer and fewer surgeons that are pursuing careers as physician scientists. It is Hmm. becoming harder and harder, especially with our tight funding climate and, you know, requirements to produce clinically in the operating room. And so we have fewer and fewer surgeons pursuing that path. And that is something I'm very passionate about trying to preserve that path and to show people that it is possible to be both a surgeon and a scientist. Because if we don't have surgeon scientists who are focusing on trying to develop the next best therapy uh, to help patients with surgical diseases, then who's going to do it? So I know time is short here, uh, but there are definitely some topics I, I, I want to touch on. So, so much has happened over the last two years. Of course, there's COVID, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the future. And uh, there is much to discuss. In the provost's office, there are the UVA grand challenges. There's the opening of the Center for Health Equity, We're talking about precision public health, precision science, precision medicine. Uh, But today, there's a really big story here at UVA. It's the opening of the Paul and Diane Manning Institute for Biotechnology. What excites you most? And what do you want to tell our listeners about a particular happening here at UVA? Well, everything you mentioned is incredibly exciting, but I I will point to and discuss the Paul and Diane Manning Institute for Biotechnology. This is a game changer. It is a game changer not only for the School of Medicine and for UVA, but it is also a game changer for the state of Virginia. The Commonwealth. Exactly. And so to be able to have this, this incredible gift from Paul and Diane Manning is what really catalyzed this. And the fact that we're going to have a 
350,000 square foot building dedicated to biotechnology research. We're going to have a CGMP manufacturing facility in there. What does that mean? It means that the biotechnology research that our researchers and faculty are developing will be able to manufacture that so that it can then be tested in patients in clinical trials all here in Virginia. So that is why there is tremendous interest from the state, our university, and all of the faculty here. So we don't have anything like this right now, so we are incredibly excited. And today is the... Groundbreaking! So look for the news. <laughs> the, the podcast will come out probably about a week or two after the big news, so probably won't be big news by the time you hear this, but this is it's exciting. Very exciting. It is. So before we wrap up, I'd like to speak a little bit about your role as a role model, an iconic figure representing women in mm -hmm. science. Equity and diversity, we talk about it all the time. And so I wouldn't be doing you or our listeners any, any real service without touching upon that. So what is your view as a champion for not only medicine, but more particularly for women in science? So thank you for asking, because this is another topic near and dear to my heart. Being a woman who has been in a male-dominated profession her entire career. Um, so yes, you know, there are still many challenges. And in the STEM, as we all know, we need to be attracting more women uh, to those fields. And I am passionate about that. And so it's important for women to serve as role models to others to show that you can do it because um, it is that saying, it's hard to be what you can't see. Right. And so I do think it's important to serve as a role model and show others that it can be done. What breaks my heart is when I have, you know, a medical student, for example, that will come to me, a female medical student, and this has happened time and time again throughout my career, where she will ask me, well, is it really possible? Can I be a surgeon and, you know, have a partner and have children? Because so-and-so says I can't. And whether it's their parents or other physicians, so it breaks my heart because it is just not true. You can do anything that you want to do and that you are passionate about. And I say to people, do not let anybody tell you there is something you cannot do. And I can point to so many amazing accomplished women who, yes, are, you know, have partners, have families, etc., and are doing great things. So I myself do not have children, but that's by choice. I have a furry family, two cats and two dogs, and I love my family. But it is very, very possible to do all that. You just have to understand um, that, you know, you have choices in life. And so the best, that's the best advice I can give to anybody is follow your passion. Well, thank you. Um, that was awesome. So last question. We're at a moment in time. We're at a place where people are talking about AI, large language models, concern for the future. And this is certainly things that occupy a lot of my time. So what does the future of the School of Medicine look like, in particular with regard to the changing landscape of research where there's this explosion of AI tools that, that we can't stop talking about? 
I think that we're going to have a huge evolution in the next five to 10 years, both in the research side as well as clinical care when it comes to AI. I mean, we're already doing things like piloting um, AI in, in our clinic spaces. So it can help the providers when they're seeing patients. It can actually be the uh, tool that is documenting the patient uh, note to save docs time. So well, their handwriting isn't any good anyway. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And when it comes to research, oh my gosh, the power of AI. I mean, it's it's almost like there's so much that um, we can imagine, and yet there's so much that we haven't yet imagined about how AI is going to potentially help us with breakthroughs for improving human health. Right. And people are are already talking quite a bit about robot surgery. It's not perfect, right? There are challenges along the way, but the whole concept, that's so much 2001 Space Odyssey, but, oh, but we there me, now. Let right? me tell you, I envision that the operating room of the future is going to have a, a integrated AI. And for example, as I'm operating, um, AI might say, uh, you know, Dr. Kibbe, be careful, the ureter is right next to you. <laughs> so yeah, I could actually see AI observing the everything. Siri voice. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, great, this was a fun conversation. Melina, you're fulfilling President Ryan's uh, vision for UVA to be great and good in all that we do. Thank you for your hard work and promoting UVA and medicine, helping to make the world a better place. And enjoy today's groundbreaking of the Paul and Diane Manning Institute for Biotechnology. This is a moment for you, for women in medicine, for the university, and for the whole Commonwealth. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So I'm Ken Ono, STEM advisor to the provost and the Marvin Rosenblum professor of mathematics, and you've been listening to Who's in STEM? Who's in STEM is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the office of the provost at the University of Virginia. Who's in STEM is produced by Catherine Kossaboom, Claire Curzan, Rhea Verma, Mary Garner-McGee, and Ariane Ballou. Our music is composed and performed by Robert Schneider and John Ferguson of Apples and Stereo. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Listen and subscribe to Who's in STEM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about scientific and technological innovation at the University of Virginia.